If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos. And in case you don't know where that is, you are probably not alone. Amos doesn't get a lot of airtime. Really, the the last 12 books in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, don't get a lot of airtime. So if you are looking for Amos, you may want to start at the back of the Old Testament and turn left. He is between Obadiah... And Obadiah is kind of like a small town in Alabama. Uh, if you blink, you'll miss him. So maybe Jonah. Uh, on the other side of Jonah is Obadiah, then Amos. If you get to Joel or Hosea, you've gone too far. We are continuing this series in the Minor Prophets. And before I read and get into this, I just kind of want to remind you where... We've been, what we've said so far, at this point in Israel's history, the kingdom has divided into, it's around 760 B.C. The northern kingdom, the northern half, is called Israel. That's not confusing enough. And then the southern kingdom is called Judah. Okay, Jerusalem, where the temple is and where God dwells, is in Judah. And if you remember, I mentioned this when... We listened to Hosea. Um, In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, the first king, after he had split the kingdom, he built a rival temple. He built a rival altar because he realized how uh, tenuous, how uh, dangerous his position was, that if his people kept going south into Jerusalem to worship the Lord, then he would lose his throne, which he lost anyway. And so his bright idea was, well, well, we'll worship the Lord, but you're going to do it here at the temple, at the altar that I set up. And he even built a golden calf to represent the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, that should sound somewhat familiar. Israel's done this before. They did it in the Exodus. Uh, So Jeroboam is picking up some bad habits. So it's to this nation that Amos speaks. And Amos is not a professional prophet, as we learned from his books. There were actually professional prophets, people who were paid, uh, and, they weren't, and they weren't any good. They were false prophets. So Amos is not a professional prophet. He actually comes from the south. God calls him from the south, from being a shepherd, to the north to proclaim this message to Israel. And here's his message. It's not a very popular one. And it's this. God will punish Injustice. God will punish injustice. And so if you've, if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered, does God care? Does God, this, is, this may be a no-brainer, does God care that Hitler exterminated close to, or maybe over 6,000 people? Does God care? God does care. So that's a no-brainer. Does God care when a local judge takes a bribe? Does God care that there are 5,000 children uh, in the foster care system? It's, it's fitting that we're going to Amos and completely unintentional uh, during this National Adoption Month. Um, because we would be prone to say, maybe we want to say, 
I don't know if God notices. I don't know if God cares. But what Amos tells us again and again is, no, God does care, right? And so God will punish injustice, and he will save the people called by his name. There's a, there's a scene, and if you haven't, if you haven't read C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, stop what you're doing and read those books. Your life is not as rich as it could be. Read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Read them to your children. Turn off Fox News. Turn off The Walking Dead. Read the Chronicles of Narnia, okay? Um, now, I'm actually going to reference the movie, so I guess I just kind of undid myself there. But in the movie of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right, at, at the end, it's been out long enough, and I'm going to spoil this for you if you haven't seen it, but you should still watch it because it's good. At the end of the movie, right, the armies, the armies of the White Witch, the evil armies, are about to win. Right? They are about to defeat, they've all but defeated the armies of King Peter. Uh, and, and the white witch is about to drop the sword on Peter. And then Aslan roars. Now Aslan is a lion, and he's the Jesus figure in these stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. And what do you think happens when a lion roars? Everybody stops. And everybody looks, right? There's a poem from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about Aslan. And there's one line in the poem, and it says this, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And that's good news. Unless, of course, you're in the wrong. And if you're in the wrong, then the lion's roar is a terrifying thing. If you are the object of the lion's wrath, then you need to be afraid. And so, Amos, chapter 1, let me pray. God in heaven, would you help us to understand this ancient book that is so far removed from where we are and yet so applicable to where we are. Though we may not understand the culture that Amos spoke to, yet we understand its issues because they are our issues. So God, would you speak again? Would you roar again through Amos right now for our good, for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. Right, so the picture I want you to have is the lion standing at the top of the mountain. And it looks like the evil is about to win. And he roars. And everything stops. And all eyes turn to him. And, and here's what he does. Here's what he says through Amos. He actually begins, right, what is the lion roaring about? He's roaring about Injustice, but where he begins, this is very clever of Amos, as he starts with Amos's, I mean, with Israel's enemies, 
right, with their, with their neighbors near them. And he goes on all points of the compass and he utters judgment against them. You can imagine the effect that would have on the hearers in Israel. They'd be like, yeah, that's right. Burn down Philistia. Yet Moab did oppress us. Who cares what happens to Tyre? Destroy them all, right? And so he goes uh, from to each enemy, right, from the, the north over here to the south over here, from the north over here to the south over here, circling Israel. And you can imagine, I, like yesterday, when I was at the football game, right, when, uh, when bad things happen to the other team, you are glad about that, right? You're glad that the other team is fumbling the ball, and so you cheer, right? And so Israel is cheering that bad things are foretold for their enemies. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, he says this, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. Now, Judah was kin... And yet they were still enemies. They'd been at war since, they, since the, really the civil war that split the kingdom had continued off and on. But I imagine the cheering started to fade at this point. Right? Um, because now Amos is beginning to hit close to home. He's won their affections and now he's closing in for the kill. Why is Judah the target of the lion's roar? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it will devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is, this is the first point, right? Injustice begins with the rejected word. Because when you reject the word, you reject the Lord. And so Judah, their kin, are guilty of rejecting God's word. And you can imagine that now they're starting to look at each other like, have, have, you, kept, have you kept the statutes? Have you, have, you, have you walked with in the law of the Lord? Right now, now they're beginning to feel the discomfort right, that God's word is meant to bring to a sinful heart. And that's where sin begins. From the very moment that Adam and Eve rejected God's word in Genesis 3, every rebellion, right, the rejection of God's word is at the heart of every bit of human rebellion. So, kids, imagine this. Imagine if you looked at your dad or you looked at your mom and you said, I love you, but I'm not going to listen to a word you say. Imagine if you did that. What, would that, what does that say about, about the real nature of your love for your parents? Right? It would be questionable. I love you, but I'm not going to do a thing you tell me to do. Right? That's where we are. That's where, that's where Judah is. Right? They're, they're giving the Lord lip service. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go, let's go to the temple. Let's sacrifice some animals. But they're ignoring God's word and then Amos drops the hammer on verse 6. Thus says the Lord, 
for three transgressions of Israel and for four. I will not revoke the punishment. Now the cheering has stopped. And they realize what Amos has been doing. Now they're in the crosshairs. And what are the charges? What are the charges that the lion brings against Israel? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fine. All right, so there are several charges that Amos lays against Israel in the course of this book. And the first one is this, that the weak are taken advantage of by the strong. Right? So injustice begins with a rejected word and a rejected Lord. And then it happens when idols reign and people become expendable. Injustice is when something else besides God has a hold of your heart, and so people now are expendable. And in this case, especially in this case, it is the weak who are taken advantage of by the strong. So another way of saying this is, if God is disposable, then so are the people made in his image. Right? If you don't believe in a God who cares about justice, then you'll bend justice to suit yourself. If you don't believe in a God who cares about and defends the most vulnerable, then you will at best ignore them or at worst take advantage of them to better yourself. Right? This is what Amos says. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They lay beside the altar on garments taken as collateral. That sounds really strange, but... Old Testament law said that if you took a poor man, if a poor man had to give you his cloak as a collateral for a loan, so if you had to lend out some money and said, give me your, co- give me your cloak so, I can, so you'll pay me back, you had to give him his cloak before nighttime so that he would be warm while he slept. You could not keep that collateral. You had to give it back so that he could stay warm. And yet here, Amos is saying, you're completely ignoring the law. You lay down beside every altar and you're laying on the cloaks that you've stolen from the poor people. You drink wine that you bought with money that you extorted from people. So even your worship is tainted by your abuse of the needy. You have money because you extorted it from somebody else. That's the case in Israel. And the second charge connected to it, and we'll go back through these, wealth has replaced God as the object of worship. So it's common for us to say, right, that, and it's true, it's accurate, you worship what your heart, what your heart desires. And so if you, want a, if you want an indication of what it is that you worship, what do you want? What are your heart's desires? You target those and you will target what you worship. And it's clear from Amos that Israel wants her wealth more than her God, right? Because they care about silver more than righteous, sandals more than justice, uh, listen to chapter 4, 1 through 3. It's a, a little insulting. Maybe, well, it's a lot insulting, actually. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. 
The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The meaning's pretty clear. These wealthy, well-fed, we use that term, women, uh, who demand of their husbands, right, bring more wine, I'm not drunk enough yet, right? And yet they oppress the poor. God says, your day's coming when you will be dragged out to slaughter through the very walls that are created in the hole, or excuse me, through the very holes created in the wall of the city. Or chapter 6, verse 7, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1, Woe, all right, so woe is a funeral cry. Woe means judgment is coming. And Amos, God through Amos says, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalma and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence, woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Right? Woe to those who are at ease. To those who stretch themselves out on couches, drinking wine and picking at the guitar. Like nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. I've got all that I need. I'm perfectly at ease. And God says, woe to you. Your judgment is coming. And then the last charge that Amos brings up is that worship has become routine and meaningless. So if wealth is really what you worship, then the worship of the true God becomes routine, uh, a small thing. We'll continue to do it, right? And I think you can uh, recently, in the past few months, went to a funeral at a gorgeous church in Birmingham, an old Presbyterian church. You've never seen stained glass like this. The wood was dark, the tiled, I mean, it was, it was a gorgeous sanctuary and completely devoid of the gospel. And the wealthiest people in Birmingham, that, that's, that's where they worship. Okay? Uh, and so they still pay their Sunday dues but their living does not reflect that worship. It reflects the worship of another God. So worship is still necessary for keeping up appearances, but hollow and empty. Chapter 5, verse 18. Before I read this, Israel thought that the day of the Lord was going to be a great day of salvation for them. But here's what God says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Like a man who fled from a lion but met a bear. 
or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and the serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right? Israel thought as long as they made the appropriate sacrifices and observed the right holidays, holy days, think Easter and Christmas, then God would be on their side. They would have no need to fear Him. And that when the day of the Lord came, they would celebrate. But God says that day will not be a day of celebration for you. He rejects their hollow, heartless worship. So let's see if we can connect all of these God is rejected. These are the charges. God is rejected and taken lightly. So Yahweh is no longer the highest good to be pursued. The good life is not walking with Yahweh. Money, stuff, comfort, those become the ends of man's life. And so now that is the highest end to be pursued. The good life is what you have and how much of it you have. That's the good life. And as a result of those two things, as a result of uh, Yahweh being despised and wealth being celebrated and worshipped, those who don't have the have-nots, they are despised as less than human. So those with privilege own the courts and they twist justice to suit themselves. Those with power rig the markets. They tamper with the balances so that they get a a bigger payoff and the poor remain poor. That's why the lion roars against Israel. So let's not make the mistake that God doesn't care, of thinking that God doesn't care. God cares about lawbreakers on both sides of the aisle. And what I mean by that is that God is angry with drug dealers, And he is angry with judges who take bribes. His justice is not blind. Like the statue that stands in front of so many Supreme Court buildings around the world, uh, our justice ought to be blind, but it can be blind because God's justice is not blind. He sees all men and women equally. And he hates when justice is perverted and when we play favorites. So... And here's the other thing. Right belief, and this is, this is how it especially applies in the New Testament, right belief ought to produce right living. And this is a consistent message of the prophets. And so every time I preach one of these sermons, it's probably going to be in there because that's what the prophets were addressing. Israel had worship. They had orthodox belief. They knew what they were supposed to believe but they did not live it. They made the right sacrifices in the temple, but they did so with money that they extorted from people weaker than them. 
And when that happens, God says, I will not accept this worship. Do not deceive yourself and think that you are mine when you neglect justice. Don't believe that I will hear your worship when you discard uh, the weak, the least, and the lost. Right? Being one with the Father through Jesus means that my heart is continually shaped by the Spirit. And so if I am one with the God of justice, then I ought to be loving justice. And I ought to be crying against injustice when I see it on both sides of the aisle. The last point is this. Divine justice will bring an end to injustice. At the very end of Amos in chapter 9, Amos sees a final vision. He says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. Now, this is, this is Jeroboam's counterfeit altar. Right, so if the, Israel's main problem is that they rejected the Lord, here is the Lord standing beside the very altar where they rejected him, about to utter his final judgment. And listen, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you can, you're hearing me t- say this and you're reading this along with me, and, and maybe you're thinking, see, I told you, your God is angry. The God, of, the God of the Old Testament is an angry God of wrath. Uh, you guys are always looking to crush people. You don't... Uh, where's all this... Why, why do you people even talk about grace and mercy? And I want to say two things to that. First, this judgment that Amos is leveling has been almost 700 years in the making. From the very moment that God gave Israel his law, they have been breaking it. And so when we we read Amos cut off from the rest of the scriptures, then that's a a valid conclusion to draw. God is angry. Uh, You know, what's wrong with this God? But when you see that God's patience has been stretched, that he is a long-suffering God, right, that Israel has been storing up this wrath for 700 years and really more, then you begin to get a better picture of what we're talking about, right? And Amos 5 and 7 reveal a God who's slow to anger. That's actually why the prophets went. Their job was to call people to repent, come back, right? Amos 5, seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live. But then there's a second thing I want to say. God laments, God weeps over the loss of his people. He is not glad in wrath. He does not rejoice in punishing the wicked. Let me read quickly Amos 5, 1 and 2. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel, Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. And then later on, starting in verse 4, he will say, Seek me and live. God does not rejoice 
in punishing the wicked. But his patience has run out, and his perfect judgment calls for punishment, and so it comes. Amos 9, 1 through 10. God stands in judgment at the very source of their idolatry. And he says, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them will flee away. Not one of them will escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it will kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Those are hard words, but they come from the mouth of the Lord. There is nowhere to escape his roar. There is nowhere to flee. When the Lord roars, there is no safe place. And Amos could not have preached a darker message. What began as a call to repentance is now the final straw has been broken. And judgment is coming and it would come. Assyria would crush Israel and do everything that the prophets said would happen. Just 40 years after his ministry. But after that vision of justice, there is another vision. There is light after the darkness. Amos 9:11. In that day... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruin and rebuild it as in the days of old so that they will possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes who him. Him who sows the seed, the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. All right, so Israel's land has been destroyed, her crops done away with, her fields are fallow, everything's wilderness, there's hunger, there's poverty, most have been exiled, removed, taken away, but God says a day is coming when I will replant you, when I will, you will plant vineyards again, you will sow fields again, and the ground will be so rich that the sower won't even have time to finish planting all the seed before the harvester comes behind him to, to, pick up the, to pick up the harvest. That's how good it's going to be. When will this be? When will peace and wholeness and even perfect justice come to the people? And it will be when the king 
returns. Right? In that day I will raise up the booth, the tent of David that is fallen. God will raise up the fallen tent, a place of shelter, a safe place. He will repair, he will raise up, he will build, rebuild. And then when that's done, most beautifully it says he will welcome in all the nations. All of the people, not just the Jews, but all of the people who are called by my name, they get to come in. James, in the New Testament book of Acts, in Acts 15, as he hears about the good news, as as he hears about the gospel of Jesus coming to the Gentiles, he quotes this verse in Amos. James sees the fulfillment of Amos in the good news coming to people like you and me. Right? The ultimate fulfillment of Amos 9 happens when David's greater son, King Jesus, lifts up the fallen shelter and creates a hiding place, a shelter for all of the people called by God's name. Jesus can do this because on the cross, he will bear the full weight of God's justice. Jesus is the sin bearer, which means he will, he will bear the full weight of God's justice. The curse will fall on him, and he will take it, and when he does, all of God's children can come home. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. You should know that before Aslan comes on, uh, roaring onto the scene at the end of the battle, you need to know where he came from. He came from the tomb. Aslan rushes into the battle after being resurrected. And before he comes from the tomb, he was on the altar, sacrificing himself for a traitor, sacrificing himself for someone who spurned his love. And so Aslan is sacrificed, and he dies, and he comes again, and he roars to victory. Or as John puts it in Revelation 5, One of the elders said to me, this is Revelation 5, 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So John looks around for a lion. And here's what he sees. Between the throne... And the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. And he, the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And they sang 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The Lord roars against injustice. He punishes injustice. But he will also save his people from their sin and gather them together under King Jesus. Do you want to see justice restored? Not just to the world, but also to your own life? You've got to come to King Jesus. Outside of King Jesus, the roar means only punishment. But when you're one with King Jesus, the roar is your salvation. The Lamb has conquered. Let's pray. Father, I am so glad you don't leave me in my sin. I am so glad you don't leave me to face your justice by myself. Because, God, if you did, who could stand? Who can bear the full weight of your fury and wrath? I am so glad that you have sent Jesus. And that in Jesus, the fallen tent of David is raised up. And that in Jesus there is a hiding place. That in Jesus justice and mercy meet. God, would we cherish that grace, cherish that mercy. And may it make us new people. People who live what we believe people who long to see justice and righteousness rain down from heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name.